Last week I was talking about the season of Advent and the wonderful time that we have presented to us in the Christmas season to remember the babe in the manger. And people love, the whole world loves the story of the babe in the manger. They look right past the cross, all the way back to the manger because that is a, the baby is harmless, right? The baby, baby has no demands other than feed me and change me. And that's a wonderful picture, but they, they miss the significant thing in between. They miss the cross. The fact that we have offended, we have committed cosmic treason against a holy God. And he sent that baby, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, so that he could die on that cross in our place to pay the debt of our sins and to wipe out the charge of treason and rebellion and bring us back into his family. And I missed that. And I took that opportunity, that wonderful picture, but I want to speak about that, which I did last week. And we looked at Matthew 24, 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. We looked also at Luke 21, 34 to 36, But take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness, the cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell upon the face of the, earth, the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. And I noted that between those two sets of verses, there's a watch and beware and be on guard. There's a, a watch as in a, be awake and alert. And there's a watch in that you should keep watching and keep the lookout. Be the, the soldier on the hill of the, uh, of the city watching for the enemy coming. And we're supposed to be, while we're watching, beseeching the Lord. Watch and pray that we will persevere to escape and that we will stand before the Son of Man. Well, the natural next piece of the message is, what's this stand before the Son of Man thing? So what I want to look at today is the next part. And I finished last week with Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which is the picture of him who's coming. It is the babe in the, in the manger and the Savior on the cross, but most importantly, it's a picture of the coming King of kings and Lord of lords. Daniel, his prophecy, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. And if you look earlier in Daniel, the first picture of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, he is the rock that was carved out of the mountain without hands, that destroys all other kingdoms. That's who's coming. 
That's who's coming in that event. So I want to start today with well, what's the, the event that we're waiting for, the next tick of the clock on the prophetic calendar. So we'll go to a, a, a passage that you'll probably all recognize out of 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul was speaking to the Thessalonians who had been taught by some erring brothers, I'll be gracious, we'll call them brothers, saying that um, the events had already come, Christ had already come, and they missed him. So Paul writes to them, but I, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest your sorrow lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with those who sleep in Jesus. God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, those are the people when, that ha- when these events happen, will by no means precede those who are asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord Therefore, comfort one another with these things. You haven't missed it. It hasn't happened yet. And those who have died aren't lost. They will precede us into this event. And he notes there's three prepositional phrases in these. It will come in a shout. It's a shout of summons or command, a cry of an encouragement. And that comes from the Lord himself. And it also will come in the sound of the archangel or in the sound of the chief angel. And in my head, I think that that's going to be Michael, the chief angel over Israel. But it doesn't say that, so that's conjecture. And then in the trumpet call. So there's a progression here, I believe. The Lord commands it to happen. The archangel repeats the command. So think back and picture Israel moving about the desert. The Lord commands it's time to move. The angel represents the command to Moses. Moses tells Joshua. Joshua sounds the shofar because the shofar is the communication vehicle of the Israeli army back then. It's There's like four phrases, and they put them together to mean different things. One of them is an alarm. The last trump we'll see in in the next passage is something very special. So there's a summons or a command. There's a what I believe is the repeat of that command by the archangel, and the trumpet sounds. And at that point, or during these things, he is descending from heaven. He's coming from the abode of God into the space between 
well, the space of the atmospheric heavens between the earth and space itself. And he says that the dead will cause themselves to arise. They're going to stand up. And they, that will happen first. And as one preacher says, yeah, they need about a six-foot head start. And then he says that we who are alive and will remain with them will be caught up. It's a passive verb. We're not going to do the action. God's going to do the action. Lead, it, it, the word has a sense of being stolen or snatched or caught away. It's almost violent. Boom, we're gone. And from that point on, we will always be with the Lord. That's what we wait for. On, on Samuel's um, tombstone, along with his name and the date, because you always put the name and the date of whoever's buried there, I have the phrase, awaiting his shout, because that's what we wait for. And that's why I wanted to bring this at this time of year, because there is a coming that we're expecting. It's not the one back there. It's the coming of a shout and a voice of an archangel and the shofar. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 58 gives us more information about this event. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Mystery in the scripture is something that's concealed. Think of a wonderful, think of David, first carved, never shown to anyone, with a, with a drapery over it. So that's a mystery. Nobody knows what it looks like except the sculpture. And Paul is going to pull off the covering, right? There's a mystery, I'm going to reveal it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. Some of us are going to be like Enoch or Elijah in the Old Testament. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when, his corruption, when this corruption has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
So there are three prepositional phrases here in this passage. Three other things to tie in with what we already looked at. The first is in, in a moment. That's the word that we get Adam from. It's, the, it's an indivisible, indivisible unit. I think it's a unit of time. It's in a, a moment, right? In the blink of an eye. Have you ever looked how fast your eye blinks? Do you notice even when you blink? It's going to be that quickly. And in the last trump. Now this is a celebration of Yom Turah, the day of blowing, or Rosh Hashanah as it's called these days, where there is a hundred soundings of the shofar during the ceremony of Yom Turah. The last trump is the Tikiya Gadola, the, the last trump. It's called the last trump. And it is a trumpet call on the shofar that the person takes a huge breath and just keeps going and going and going until he utterly runs out of air. I believe this is the call for move out. And at that point, we will be raised up. So literally, it's the dead will be awakened or raised up. And then I think it goes back to the phrase in the previous passage, they will stand up. That's resurrection. And then we will be changed. It doesn't say how we're going to be changed right there. The verb doesn't tell you that we're going to be different. But the passage talks about how we're going to be different. And it lines up these pairs. The first, let me find it. This corruptible must put on incorruptible. And the concept of corruptible is perishable, is rotting, is decaying, it's falling apart. And we're going to put on the opposite of that. No longer decaying no longer falling apart, no longer sinning and rebelling. And when this mortal puts on immortality, so this is diff slightly different than corruptible. This is something about us being subjected to death. Right now we have eternal life, but we're still subjected to death. Physically we're going to die and if you remember death, and pastors said this, I, I, I think I've lost count of the times, death is not cessation of being. Death in scripture is separation of things. Physical death is separation of the spiritual aspect of man from his body. And it's kind of an abomination. Death that we're born into separated from God, we're spiritually dead, we're separated from God. And the last death is spiritual death made permanent. Permanent separation from God. But for us, who have been given new life because we've trusted in that sacrifice that Christ made for us, we will, know, we will be changed and that subject to death will no longer be subject to death. 
we will no longer be subject to being separated from God. And the previous passage says, and so we will ever be with the Lord. And as, as you see where it's saying, Paul exalts, death, where's your sting? Hades or Sheol, the grave, where's your victory? We've escaped. And he exhorts us right here. Therefore, because of these things, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. To be steadfast, literally the verb is to become. Become steadfast. Steadfast is self-controlled, solid, settled, immovable. An immovable object. You can't be moved. You're firm. You're not readily shaken is another way of looking at that. The things that buffet us about, the trials of our life, the trials of our ministry, should not move us away from the truth. And more importantly, all of these things, as we'll see, are not talking about intellectual moving. It's talking about the doing. Don't be moved away from doing what we're supposed to do. And I mentioned last week, you know, we're all facing more expenses as utilities go up and food goes up. We can't be moved away from doing here what we need to do. This embassy of heaven must stay open in the city that we're sent to. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding. Abounding is more than enough. So how much does the Lord think is enough from us? Sometimes that's a really hard thing to put your finger on, right? So you want to be doing steadfastly and not being moved from doing more than he requires. You want to give it your all. And you know what? The King of kings and Lord of lords deserves excellence to speak from a friend's preaching. Absolute excellence. Look what David poured into the first temple. All the gold, all the silver. When Solomon had his kingdom, gold and silver were so plentiful in his kingdom that it was like they had no value. Right? God deserves our very best. And he reminds us, now, now think past. Think about who's saying this. Paul went to the nations, to the Goyim. He reached the Jews as he went first. And then he reached the Gentiles when he got kicked out of the synagogues. 
and he planted a church and moved on. Timothy came often behind and appointed elders, plural, in the churches to lead the churches. Most of them were new believers, right? The Jews at least had the grounding of the Torah. But this was a whole new thing. And Paul poured himself out in prayer over those churches. He agonized over the churches. And he kept writing them letters. And he, when he could, he visited them again. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Sometimes we're not sure about the work. Sometimes we're not sure about that conversation. Have the conversation anyway. Reach out, ask God for an appointment, ask him for the words, ask him for boldness, ask him to work in that person's heart and give them the gospel. Your work will not be in vain. You may not see the harvest. I mean, that's what we're talking about in Sunday school, that they're sowing and reaping. And the sowing is the hard work and we need to be sowing and not just focused on the reaping, because the reaping is only like a couple weeks of the whole agricultural year. We actually need to be doing both. We sow all the time and we reap whenever we can. Your labor is not in vain. Now what's your labor in the Lord? There's a big question here. I mean. Pastor Roman's pretty settled in what his work is to do, right? He's called to be the pastor. And there's a lot of things in the scripture. Paul's exhortation to Timothy and to Titus. But we all have a plan for our... God has a plan for all of us. He gifts every one of his children. What's your gift? What's he want you to do with your gift? What's your ministry and calling? Those are big questions that... If you've been a believer for any length of time, you should already know. And what's your gift? I mean, you can take inventories, but what's your gift is really told to you by ministering, and you say, wow, God's really blessing this aspect of my life. And it's not the same as what you do for a job, and it's not the same, you know, with the talents that he's given you. It's a spiritual gift. What is your gift and what are you doing and how fruitful is, is God being through you in other people's lives? I will tell you right here that your gift is not to come here for one hour a week and sit and listen to a sermon. As important as that is, because this is a teaching moment, that's not your gift. And your gift is not criticism. Or sarcasm, although there's a lot of us who really like sarcasm. So these are pictures, and it's starting to transition right here into the result of his coming back, right? Steadfast, immovable, always abounding. And why is that important? Well, let's look at the next passage. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Another familiar passage. Now, this is what happens after that event and before the bride comes for the wedding. Now, 
In Revelation, when the bride comes for the wedding, she is dressed in the righteous acts of the saints. So we know that this next event has already happened because you'll see from the passage. So 1 Corinthians 3, and I'm going to read a bunch and talk about a little. For we are God, so there's a controversy in Corinth. Apollos is teaching, Paul is teaching, there's others teaching, and, and those who really like Apollos' teaching says, I'm for Apollos. I'm, I'm on team Apollos. And others were like, I'm on team Paul. And others were like, the heck with you, those are guys, I'm on team Jesus. Right? And Paul's exhorting them because he's like, what are you guys, silly? So he goes into this. For we are all, Apollos and Paul and this other person, are all fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So there's a metaphor, right? You're a field. We're going to do an agricultural picture. You're a building. We're going to build a building. Paul's trying to give them a visual picture of the ministry of Paul and Apollos and his other person in individual lives. According to the grace of God, which was given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, that's the gospel, and another builds on it, that's Apollos. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid. So you can't be starting a new building. They're, the building's already started. And that, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work is which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So he's talking primarily about a building. Paul was the foundation layer. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is laid first, and it gives a plumb line for the foundation. This direction and that direction. And then they build the two to another corner directly opposite. Same length, right? So the building's nice and square. Think the temple. And there's six different types of building materials. They're all valid building materials. There's gold and silver and precious stones, and there's wood, hay, and stubble. And yet people would ask, why wood, hay, and stubble? Well, that, there's your thatched roof on a house. People understood this. That's why the, the men carrying the paralytic could break open the roof and lower the guy down in front of Yeshua. Right? Wood, hay, and stubble, it breaks apart, held together by mud. And Paul makes an important point. He's talking about how I build, how Roman builds, how pastor builds, how each one of you build into each other's lives. Because we all exhort one another, right? It's going to be tested. The other side of the trumpet call 
is a performance evaluation. Have you ever had a performance evaluation at work? Have you ever had a bad performance evaluation at work? I remember way back in my one of my first jobs, you know, I've been there like two weeks working at Dry Corn's Bread doing account, uh, telling the, the um, orders that the drivers, the salesmen brought in and you know, the guy, the con controller brought me in and goes, you gotta get your act together. You're going too slow and you're not getting it right. And if you don't get your act together, you're, you're gonna be fired. And I, I just focused harder and I finally got the groove and I was able to be, you know, Johnny on the spot and getting things tallied up and, and, and I didn't get fired. This side of the rapture, the snatching away, we need to know that there's a performance evaluation. We need to think about our ministry to each other. We need to think about whether or not we're, we're doing the job right. It says that day will declare it. It's going to be made public or manifest, visible, evident. It will be made clear and visible by the fire. So when you take those six building materials and you pass them through fire, what happens? Well, gold and silver, fire refines them and they become more valuable because the impurities in the gold and silver get burnt off. Precious gems continue to be precious. They're not harmed by fire. But what happens to wood, hay, and stubble when you put it in the fire? It burns. Right? And that's what he says here. If anyone's work which he has built endures, literally it remains, it abides, he will receive wages or a reward. If anyone's work is burned up or consumed, he will suffer loss. Yet he will be saved. It's very clear. This is not about salvation. It's not about you going to heaven or not. You're already there. This is about God wanting to reward you for running a good race. And we'll see in the next passage, it's, it's at the Bema seat, right? This is the seat of judgment like at the Isthmian Games or the Olympic Games. Did you run the race according to the rules? Did you do what I told you to do? And there are parables in Matthew that talk similarly about the second coming of Christ also, where here's a talent. Here you have ten talents, and he goes and makes ten more. And here's five talents, and he goes and makes five more. And here's one talent, and he goes and buries it, and has an excuse, says, you're an austere man, hard to please. Here's your talent back. 
and they get different responses. And then there's another one where they all get the same response, the good ones. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So God wants to bless you. It's like God has a whole plan for your life. All the people that you're supposed to talk to, all the people you're supposed to witness to, the people that he's going to use you to save, the people he's going to use you to strengthen, and at the end he goes, okay, here's my plan, let's see how you did. Oh, yeah, you didn't go to that appointment. You missed that one. That's lost. Oh, you weren't, you were pretty harsh and judgmental to that person instead of building them up. That's a loss. That's the way we should kind of think about that. And that's for the here and now. This, these are things for the here and now. Because we know that that day, which is the day of us standing before him, that we're praying for from last week, that we will stand before him, is a day that we should think twice about, or maybe three times about, as we look at our own lives. Now let's flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 11, which is, speaks similarly. Therefore, we make it, so Paul is talking about the assurance of the resurrection and the judgment seat that comes after this, right? Therefore, we make it, we, not, Paul isn't going, I make it. Paul says, we, because of these things, because of the resurrection, because of that appointment, we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are well-known to God, and I trust we are also well-known in your consciences. So we're all gonna we're all gonna appear there. And we make it our goal, our aim, our what we're striving to to excel in. And the, the thing that we're striving to do is to be well pleasing to God. And I found that term really, really interesting. So we're uh, to aspire or have ambition to this, right? To being well-pleasing to God. The, the concept of aspiring, one author said, it's to devote oneself to be zealous for a cause. Now, you want to see a picture of zealous? Look at the, the Rabbi Shaul before he went to Damascus. I have letters. I'm going to put you all in jail. We have to stop this movement now. And God said, boy, look at that zealous guy. I think I'll make him one of mine. <laughs> so, he can, so I can reach the Gentiles. I'll take this Orthodox Rabbi Shaul, who hates Jesus, 
and thinks he's a heretic, and I'm going to make him my greatest preacher of the gospel, he's going to lay the cornerstone. Now, do you think that there's any enemies that can stand in our way? And he did. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I think you're going to be blind for a bit. Uh, Ananias, go and put your hands on him and make, give him back his sight. Don't worry, I showed him all he's going to suffer for me. Now, I think every one of us would appraise Paul as the top of the heap. Like, oh my goodness, he went through the whole world. He brought the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there's one author that I'm looking at going, yeah, he went to the entire table of nations. If that's correct to you, I'm still thinking about that. He planted churches and, and the churches are still here today. The gates of hell have not prevailed against it. So, are you devoted like Paul? Now think about that. Paul gave up everything. Paul turned his back on being in the Sanhedrin. And they hated him. Matter of fact, tradition has that only one of the apostles didn't die a martyr's death. But they tried to boil him in oil and were unsuccessful. What are you willing to give up for Christ? What do you think he wants from you? Well-pleasing. Well-pleasing is also used, that term, the Greek term, is also used in, in Titus 2.9 of slaves who give satisfaction to their masters. So I look at it kind of this way. When, when Yeshua looks at me, do I bring a smile to his face? Look at this guy. Look what he did. Isn't that awesome? You want a picture that's even more concrete? Look at Joseph after the prison part under Pharaoh as prime minister of Egypt. Don't you think that whenever Pharaoh looked at Joseph, he had a smile on his face? This guy is saving my country. That's our goal. Are you well-pleasing to Christ? Now that's an order that's, you know, up at the roof, right? But if you don't know that that's there, you can never strive for that. You can never make that in your ambition. And Christ loves us. You know, all the work that we do in the gospel, all the work we do in teaching, all we, the work we do in school, all of that is not accomplished by this power. All the work that we do in fighting our own sin is not accomplished by this power. It's accomplished by this book and the power of the written word in the hands of the Holy Spirit, using me as a glove, or you as a glove, 
So is that achievable? Absolutely. Would the Holy Spirit want you to do that? Absolutely. Is Christ going to provide everything through his Spirit so you can achieve that? Absolutely. You know what the only thing that we bring to the, the bargain is? Cooperation. Ah, I can't do that. Junior church is so hard. Teaching kindergarten is so hard. Roman was talking last night. We were, we were over his house, and he's like, I love teaching history. You know? And if you're doing what God wants you to do, don't you think he'll fill your heart with joy over it? So, it's interesting to know that, note that it says, you will receive, that each one may receive the things done in the body. It's not just, well, I think about Christ, and I pray. It's about doing the work. There's people to talk to. There's prisoners to visit. There's elderly to comfort and encourage. Right? There are people to stand up against when, it's, when there's unrighteousness. It is about yielding my being and body to Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's not fun to go to Shalom, New York and walk miles and miles and miles around the city and talk to hundreds of people I don't know. As an introvert, that's not comfortable. But God doesn't call us to comfort. He calls us to the work. He calls us to the work that he wants to bless us through to, so that he might give us a reward later. And Paul's reaction here, because you could be the son that says, I'll go, Dad, and doesn't go out of the Gospels. And the one who says, I'm not going to do that, and then later regrets it and goes. And Jesus asks, well, which one did the Father's will? The one who went, even though he had a bad reaction up front. Right? Paul's reaction to this is knowing, therefore, the phobos of the Lord, the phobia, the terror I am so glad the, the New King James calls that out as terror. Paul looks at that and goes, that's going to be terrific. I really don't want to stand before Christ and, and hear a litany of what didn't go right. And I don't think that that's what it's going to feel like there. But, you know, this, this whole thing, it's publicly manifested. It's pretty clear in the, in, the, in the Greek. Hang your head in shame. Or just weep for joy at what God's done through you. We all have an appointment. We're called to the building with a shofar, with a shout, the voice of an archangel, 
the shofar of God, the tequila godola, the last trump, and we will be changed, and we will, for the first time ever, be able to stand before the risen Christ because we won't be consumed as we look him face to face. And he desires to reward you. Now, the rewards are a whole interesting other matter that I, need, I, I realized, wow, I wanted to talk about crowns, but oh, no, I need to study a whole lot more there. Um, and that meeting should motivate us to be faithful and to be diligent. So I end with a question. Um, actually, two questions. Are you diligently walking worthy of the Lord? So, so, and, and are you devoted to being well-pleasing, which is the question in the last verse. The first concept here, the Old Testament law has 613 provisions. From what I understand from other writers, I have not counted them myself, the New Testament has 713 commands in it. And all of them are commands. These are things that are non-optional. Some of them are hard, like be holy as I am holy. Right? Some of them are hard, like control your tongue. All of those are commands. We need to fulfill the commands. In the Gospels, Jesus himself says, we're going to give an account for every idle word. Every unemployed word. That's like the literal translation. Everything that's careless and not thought out and not there for a purpose, you're going to have to give an accounting. So think about this. How would you feel if the IRS called and say, we need you to show up for an audit with our forensic accountant and all of your records? Now, when that happens, it's kind of too late to do anything about it, right? But I'm telling you about the audit that's coming, and you can change the path you're on, and you know what? God would be thrilled. Christ would be thrilled if you change direction because you're going in the wrong direction because he absolutely loves repentance. When one sinner repents, the angels rejoice in heaven, Now is the time to think about these things because you don't know when that day and hour comes. Now we might say, well, if it's really Rosh Hashanah, then it's going to happen. Yeah, but you don't know when you're going to die. My brother died at the beginning of this year, seven years older than me, like that from COVID. You don't know if you have a tomorrow. Neither do I. Let's get our act together and be serving the Lord. Make it your devoted, zealous ambition to be well-pleasing to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. We thank you, Father, for telling us well ahead of time 